more than anything is just a horse that won't quit. There's no way he finishes. I owe him the chance. Get up. I'm Tim Finley, and this is To Live With Honor. Chapter 1. Providence. Providence. Noun. 1. The foreseeing care and guidance of God or nature over the creatures of the earth. 2. God, especially when conceived as omnisciently directing the universe and the affairs of humankind with wise benevolence. 3. A manifestation of divine care or direction. Jangled nerves squeezed my lungs silent. I couldn't hear Missy breathing either, but I could swear I heard him breathing. He was breathing. We stared out across the racetrack infield to the starting gate. The April afternoon sunlight twinkled against it in a spectacle of stars. The brisk air chilled the sweat collecting on my temples. All ten horses within the starting gate stilled. Honor was still. Missy and I were still. The background rumble of the universe fell silent for the first time. A whisper shot down with the sunlight like crackle before lightning. You still live, honor guard. Have you ever seen a miracle? Ever felt its breath on the back of your neck? Smelled its puddles of hemorrhaged hopes? Have you listened to the way it quakes the ground? Ran fingers over its scar? Have you asked the cosmos your question? Did you have the courage to listen? What is honor? What is honor? A horse cares nothing about his scars. He runs because he can. The gates crashed open. The cosmos has no need for heroes. A man will puff out his decorated chest and challenge the stars because he stands on a hill. But the stars don't suffer the hubris of man. A supernova will explode into clouds of golden uranium confetti light years across. Supermassive black holes devour entire galaxies. Neutron stars collide with such force it echoes across the universe in waves of warped space-time. A man on a hill? Regardless of his medals or achievements, he has nothing to say in the matter. There is one human thing, however, that interests the stars. One event capable of folding the space between the stars and commanding them to align. In a choreographed waltz, they slide into a perfect constellation and all the universe bends a knee in respect to that one humble thing. Honor. A folded flag. I slouched in my office chair and stared at the black desktop monitor. I had just finished scrolling through photos from Joplin, Missouri from two weeks prior. An EF5 tornado had torn my childhood hometown to shreds. After years of storm chasing and cleanup, I sprinted back home to help where I could and apply what expertise and experience I had. Joplin had always been home, but it wasn't there. Not just gone, destroyed, utterly. 
The baseball field upon which my dreams were formed and memories etched became a war zone of blasted rubble from someone else's dreams and memories a quarter mile away. I returned because I thought perhaps there was honor hiding beneath the destruction. But beneath the piles of bricks and splintered trees, we found no such thing. All we found was death. Anytime I had ever gone looking for honor, it was all I ever found. And they gave me a fucking medal. Joplin brutally reinforced what had become an axiom in my life. That I was alive, and there was no honor in it. It was June 2011, and my gym clothes stunk of sweat and cigarettes. Any other day, I'd distract myself with video games until my fiancé, Missy, returned home. When she did, it was always the same. Her blaming, me lying and rationalizing, and both of us screaming. To say our relationship was complicated would be saying Twitter is healthy civil debate. The goods were amazing, but the bads were legendary. Humans are complicated, messy, and have as many shadows as highlights. To make matters worse, the shadows between the two of us often overlapped. She demanded passwords to all my email accounts, access to my text messages, and interrogated me daily about whom I had spoken with and why. On one occasion, after a phone call with an ex, requesting money from me amid a financial emergency she was having, Missy swung wild hammer fists against my face, splitting my lip open because I neglected to tell my ex that Missy and I had recently become engaged. Fear does that. Fear coerces consent of the mind to do awful things a person not imprisoned by fear wouldn't do. But as I said, her shadows and mine overlapped. My temper boiled just below the surface at all times. While I never laid hands on her, I raged in volumes to wake the dead. But I didn't need to. The literal skeletons in my closet were always awake and always aware. They listened to every deplorable thing I screamed at her. They scoffed at my fear and waved the shame in my face. Every time I tried to hurt her with words, they sneered to each other how awful I was. Every vile comment, abusive argument, or rage-filled tirade, they reminded me of what I allegedly was or was supposed to be. But I was a monster pretending not to be. When she hit me, I heard, serves you right. The insidiousness of it all was the arguable justice in how we treated each other. There was evidence on both sides to at least argue, can you blame him or her? She had reason for punching me. Perhaps not in that one instance, but at large, I felt like she did. Maybe she felt she deserved to be screamed at for the controlling abuse she put on me in return. I don't know. What I do know is the codependency was damaging us irreparably, not just as a couple, but as individuals, and somehow that damage further committed us to each other, like a sunk cost fallacy. I can't and won't testify to her thoughts or feelings. I only truly know my thoughts, as scattered and disheveled as they were. We were not evil people, nor good people. We were neither and both and no one thing all the time. We were Schrodinger's couple, electrons existing in a non-absolute state, in an unpredictable field of potentially good or potentially bad, revolving around a nucleus of hope, never revealing their full nature except in flashes of observation, individual acts, and choices. We were human, and we were alive. 
And that too, for me, was a superposition of both damnation and possible redemption. But that truth remained hidden behind some future chance observation in time and space. Because of my past, being alive meant I was either fundamentally irredeemable or redeemable by virtue of the chance still existing. Focus on the former ran roughshod through my conscience in the form of survivor's guilt. The ambiguity of whether being alive meant I was something vile or something worth a chance. When she hit me, I had no argument against it. When I screamed at her, the cognitive dissonance wasn't because she was controlling. It was because I couldn't reconcile why I shouldn't let her. In all of our arguments, Missy had been confronting ghosts I never could. Not intentionally. But she confronted their effects. I tried keeping the ghosts from Dover fenced in or hidden, but they always escaped. Moreover, I was running out of places to hide them. Those hours festered the worst. The ones waiting at home, alone. Knowing she would ask whom I talked to that day and what the conversations were about. Knowing she would call me a liar even if I wasn't. Knowing I didn't have a counter-argument. Knowing full well the controlling cult-like tactics of placing someone in a round room and demanding they stand in the corner and then debasing them for not doing it. Knowing. Knowing anyway and conceding. But we were human. And we were alive. Not evil. Not good. Not any one binary thing. But I wanted to be good. Independently so. To grow and redeem and hope and love and somehow do it all in a shadowed valley where none of that seemed possible. Or deserved. That evening, though, some twinkle billions of light years away took interest. A finger of inspiration tapped me on the shoulder. Horses make her smile. You see, Missy was an equestrian. She moved with me from Florida to a small Oklahoma horse property six months prior in the fall of 2010. As our relationship eroded, she sought refuge on the back of a half-crazed mutt pony named Maverick. On the lunge line, he sprinted in circles like a lunatic on a leash. He was no competition horse, but he was the only smile she had. Her champion mare came up permanently lame right before we left Florida. I sat in the saddle the day it happened. I think it was my fault. I was not a horse person. It was just shy of 7.30 p.m. The livestock auction was starting a few miles up the road. Missy attended these auctions for the sake of cheap horse tack, but more so to see all the animals. No matter the circumstances, animals inspired Missy's smile. However, she was still working, no doubt lamenting her own anxieties about coming home. This was rarefied genius. I could run down to the auction house, snap photos of adorable animals, soften the sharp edges, and make Missy smile. She'd see me trying, and I would be trying. Beneath it all, I did love her. I loved all of her, through the bad, to the best of her. But I was losing her, and losing me. I was afraid of losing her. I was always afraid. I hated the auction house. The filthy, sheet metal shithole was a study in scrapyard leftovers. One could get tetanus just from showing up. As far as the animals, where Missy saw fluffy and cuddly, I saw downtrodden and discarded. Where Missy saw deals and opportunity, I saw broken and abandoned. Where she saw warm, beating hearts, I saw cold, cruel steel. It reminded me. Honor. <laughs> 
My existence revolved around it like a galactic center of gravity. Not the idea, not the virtue, the word. Five stupid letters that some moronic 20-something would wax philosophical about and judge others by. It was the end-all be-all. I craved a chance to forge it from my own blood, toil, and sacrifice. I wanted to hoist a gleaming sword and lead a cavalry charge from the front. I wanted to descend into the valley and crush an unbeatable evil in poetic combat. <laughs> but I wasn't a horse person. Between 2001 and 2004, my men charged without me into places like the Sunni Triangle, the Korangal Valley, Najaf, Baghdad, Nasriya, and Takurgar. All 387 of my men came back dead. I was an honor guard. All our men came back dead. I tucked their honor between the perfect folds of triangle-shaped flags and served my heroes under the banner of our motto, In Enore et Dignitate, Latin for To Honor with Dignity. Honor meant something morose, something one died with, synonymous with death like samurai seppuku. After all, honor was my job, but so was death. Salute it long enough, it salutes back. Even by the highest honor guard standards, I was one of the best once upon a time. But by 2011, the screeching noise of mangled reminders drowned out that proud memory. In the time since Dover, I began to think my heart had forgotten what the word meant, or more likely, that I never really knew. Going to the auction sparked those memories, yet a weird, unearthly conviction compelled me. I sprang to my feet, marched out the front door, and sat in my car. I turned the key halfway. Music played as the broken air conditioner fan spun to life, blowing warm air on my shins. I hesitated, disappointed in myself. Garth Brooks sang a verse to standing outside the fire as I planted my forehead against the steering wheel. I thought of Missy. I thought of the sincerity in her smile, the smile that sprang from her love of furry, four-legged things. I retraced the weird, rocky path that had led me to this moment. I thought all the way back to better men than myself. This desperate Hail Mary was where my broken promises to them had brought me. Rotting fungus resides dormant in tree roots for years, only to mushroom out in a fairy ring long after the tree is dead and gone, and only when it rains. Eight years after Port Mortuary, now an Air Force captain, I spent most of my time kicking at mushroom ghosts as they sprouted. Missy watched a man swinging haymakers at invisible enemies. I wanted her to see a man of honor. But honor, like the ranger with polished boots, was a dead memory. There's a man going around taking names. And he decides who to free and who to blame. Everybody. I squeezed the steering wheel and growled. I snapped my head back and gnashed my teeth. A twisted key clicked, exhaust roared, and tires chirped as I dumped the clutch into reverse. I drove and listened to the radio, stopping only to assist a turtle in his crossroad journey. I had only been inside the auction house once before to pick up Missy, but long enough to see what I didn't want to see. This would be the one time I would ever actually attend the auction. Gandhi said, Providence has its appointed hour for everything. It was 7.45 p.m., June 23, 2011. I was broken, but I was trying. I felt hopeless, but I gave hope a chance. 
The setting sun lit the rust hills ablaze. Honor waited beyond them. Multitudes are marching to the big kettle drum. Voices calling, voices crying. Some are born and some are dying. It's Alpha and Omega's kingdom come. My gym attire did nothing to camouflage me. My cut-off t-shirt and blue board shorts exposed my bizarre presence as much as my ghost-white bird legs and farmer's tanned arms. Given the western-style dress code, I might as well have dressed in drag with a pink feather boa. I shielded my face with shadows as I hid in a top-corner bleacher. Locker room stench provided a canvas for notes of cow piss, horse shit, and moldy hay in the stagnant June stickiness. Fluorescent lights buzzed atop a fog of filth. Flies and June bugs danced their lavish, pestilent dance. My seat offered vantage to see the auction floor for pictures, but also opened a perspective. The story playing out before me played differently than my previous visit. It was like sitting through the sixth sense a second time, analyzing how one was duped the first go. I caught new motifs, new symbolism, and new plot lines I hadn't noticed or appreciated before. I detested the auction house. Not just because of the locale, but also its patrons. The way they treated their animals, or at least tolerated them being treated, disgusted me. I thought less of them. I judged them. But something beautiful and new bloomed in this cesspool. It was remorse. Aside from the occasional scampering child, smiles and laughter were alien or even absent. These were not pretentious racehorse owners. These were earthy people with faces carved by the wind-blown grit and painted by the sun no different than the hills outside. Many sold their animals as a final resort. They weren't ignorant or abusive or neglectful. They sold because they had to. The honesty of their plight floated through the stench. The bittersweet scent humbled me, and I respected it. They brought pain to the auction and sold it for the rock-bottom price of hope. But those on the other end of the exchange weren't merchants of hope. The buyers stunk of metallic indifference. It was bitter, like sucking on an old penny. Only callous cowardice reaps from the weak, and no mountain of profit should ever buy immunity from moral decency. I called them buyers, but in fact, they were takers. They pay for pounds, not pets, not partners. Slaughter. The large, medieval-looking, armor-plated door creaked open for the first auction. A task force of playful pygmy goats sprang through. Missy loves goats. I snapped several pictures, paying special attention to baby goats to score valuable upsell points. Click, click, send. Missy responded with a smiley face text. Five dollars covered the whole sale. All four goats. This was how these auctions went, and the reality sobered me. After the goats, cattle collided and stampeded through the narrow metal doorway, banging frightened legs, faces, and other herd members against the unforgiving frame. Calves were tossed about, knocked to the ground, and trampled. What farmer had it so bad that he sold his cattle here, like this? Who could think this was okay? Were the animals on the floor? Or were the animals in the stands? I slowed my breathing to maintain my focus. Ponies and donkeys followed. These pictures would be worth their pixels in gold with Missy, 
I slid down several rows to get closer. An all-black mini-horse with her forelock dyed punk purple shuffled on tiny hooves into the arena. Purple bows adorned her mane and tail. The owner demonstrated how docile the mini was by placing her rambunctious four-year-old son on the little mare's back. The pony stood dutifully as if cognizant of the woman's claim. Snap, click, send. The mother plucked the boy from the $110 pony's back. He rebelled with a tantrum, pointing and reaching and sobbing as they took the pony away. The mother cupped her palm over her mouth and lost the battle against tears. She dragged her wailing son off the floor. I stopped taking pictures, and I stopped messaging sweet things to my fiancé. I sat confused, adrift, and scattered amongst the waves. Outside, sunlight vanished beyond the horizon and darkness oozed in through the weathered gaps in the walls. The horses flowed one by one, two at a time, and three or more in a group through the constrictive doorway. Inevitably, a mare and her foal would enter through the doorway. I wanted a photo of the foal darting and springing around the mare, but the dissonance in my mind, my conscience, and my stomach stifled all remaining desire to portray any of this as cute. I returned to my secluded corner perch. Ducunt valentum fata, nolentum trahunt. Fate leads the willing, drags the unwilling. Good horses from broken homes went for $300. Pasture-bred mares and their foals went for $200 as a pair. Once great horses, now broken and without homes, sold for less. The lame sold for pennies. The old, the broken, the lame, the sick, the less than desirable. The equine, the elite. The wretched refuse of the horse world paraded naked and humiliated like a scene from Schindler's List. I thanked God Missy wasn't there to witness it. The beautiful dignity she admires in the spirit of a horse was nothing but a shattered, shame-wilted memory for these creatures. When was the last time a smiling girl offered them a carrot? How long had it been since someone scratched them on the shoulder and told them they were good horses? Each one, each time, did they know it was the last? Did they still hope? I hated knowing. I hated myself for knowing. Only bloodletting and the malice of metal remained. Upon exiting through the iron doorway, they would never be horses again. Never. It was port mortuary in reverse. I was watching the death march of angels. And it hurt. The buyers lining the rows adjacent the stage sneered critiques of size, health, and profit. The copper taste came racing back. My stomach stewed with guilt and rage. I stood to leave, but I paused. The same ethereal compulsion laid a hand on my shoulder and pinned me to my seat. I don't know why I stayed. I hung my head and endured the segue to slaughter.
A flash of brown and black jarred my mind free and yanked my eyes to the stage. A lanky colt charged through the haze and onto the dirt floor. Spirited and wild, there was something brilliant about him, something out of place, something unidentifiable but undeniable. This colt was a Lamborghini in a used car lot. What the hell was he doing here? Just shy of 16 hands, he was gargantuan, a patchwork of brown, black, and dirt. The colt had one white sock, a small white spot on his forehead, and a mane like unkempt weeds. He wobbled around the stage with the awkwardness of a 6'5 eighth grader. Head too big, body too small, legs too long, knees too knobby, hips too high, withers too low, butt too narrow, belly too round, ribs too prominent, and his feet too... unpredictable. I didn't care. I adored him. I prized this dingy diamond not because he resembled a confirmation photo of Secretariat, but instead I respected what he wasn't. Despite the hectic atmosphere and someone chasing around the stage with a crop, the colt didn't seem scared. He resisted the urging of the handler not out of laziness, but curiosity. He peered through the fence at the joyless faces in the stands. He engaged each human with eye contact. He was the only living thing in the arena that night to do so, human or otherwise. He rebuked instinctive flighty horse behavior. He flaunted his curiosity and apologized for nothing. Beyond all else, a notion about him welded my interest. He was alive. In a place marred by inevitable death, he burned with life. He was alive. God, he was so alive. He snorted through the fence, investigating a tiny girl as she waddled by. She paused and looked back at him. She offered him a smile and a drink from her tippy cup. His ears swiveled forward as if to say, hello. The crop snapped against the colt's rump. The sound ejected me from my bromance and dropped me back in the stink of reality. Before the bidding began, the auctioneer offered what little backstory was available. I winced through the auction house noise in hopes to hear at least key words and phrases from a worthless 60-year-old PA system. All I heard were Charlie Brown's parents. Wah, 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 wah. I wanted to stand and demand people shut up so I could hear. Through the noise I caught, thoroughbred? Jockey Club registered, and yearling. My eyes widened, and my pulse accelerated. I twitched, palms sweaty. The bidding started at $300. Surely this colt would surpass the price of any other that night. The auctioneer rattled into his rhythm and motored the number down to $200 with intermittent regular speed car salesman pitches like, Folks, come on now. Y'all can own your own racehorse. I chuckled at this statement, remembering that no stodgy racehorse owners were in attendance. He continued, as did the bidding silence. The silence tightened my chest. The handler became frustrated with the colt's Ferdinand the Bull attitude, smacking him repeatedly, each time harder. The auctioneer lamented as the price dipped below $100. He emphasized the auction had no reserve, and the highest bid would win. I knew what that meant. The cult was abandoned. <laughs> Similar stories littered local headlines. Because of the recession, feed price increases, and drought, 
abandoned, neglected, and abused horses were a plague in Oklahoma. The previous owner carted this victim of circumstance to the auction and had left him for dead. But this was a jockey club thoroughbred yearling. There was more to it. It wasn't that his owner couldn't afford him. His owner just didn't want him. My heart shattered. A buyer sat four rows below me. I listened to his scathing remarks about the colt. I knew enough to know he wasn't an owner, and none of the multiple horses he'd already purchased would be enjoying fields of Bermuda grass. Only $50, y'all. That's all. Let's send this horse to a good home. The auctioneer pleaded. The frail hope in his voice reached for the sensibilities of his audience. A groundswell of emotions in my heart caught fire and boiled my body with anxiety. I stared at the colt's square knees and Nikki Six mane. What kind of horse does fifty dollars buy? If I'd been a horse person, I would have known. Fifty dollars buys a dead horse. My heart turned violent. Sweat streamed down my sides and pooled inside cold fists. My legs quivered. I slung my gaze at my shoes, rationalizing to the floor at my feet. Every thump in my chest pushed fear and doubt throughout my body. An urge built. I fought it. No, not me. I was ashamed. I envisioned the colt cramped in a sweltering stock trailer bound for Mexico. The shing of sharpened steel tugging across hair and skin. The panicked, guttural pleas for mercy, wondering what he did to deserve it. Apologizing for whatever he did wrong. Then the world would go quiet and turn into blackness as the crimson puddle oozed over the vents of a rusted drain. He was going to die, and I would do nothing to stop it. Then the ghosts arrived. Familiar faces, disfigured, hollowed-eyed phantoms, crept out from shadowy pockets and corners all around the auction house. The soldiers with shredded faces, exposed skull bone and mangled jaws, they whispered from their hiding places. Goose flesh cranked on every follicle, making my body itch. No, not me. I never saved anything. You were not No. I clenched and unclenched my fists as I rocked back and forth. You Confusion, regrets, questions, more noise, more noise. The crescendo threatened to burst into blood-colored tears and sweat. You No, I can't. I can't save him. I can't. This isn't my fight. I can't feel this, too. Where is your honor? Honor died when I didn't! Silence. Stillness. The ghosts vanished. A cold drop of sweat fell in slow motion off the tip of my nose. I lifted my blanched face to the stage. Only the sound of my breath and decelerating heartbeat remained. The auctioneer's rhythm slowed to a lullaby. Through tunnel vision, I saw only a colt. A colt very much alive. One last whisper floated from the shadows. You still live, honor guard. The buyer leaned to his left and snickered to the man next to him. He's worth four times that as big as he is. Here! I belted it, angry, like a fighting word. Oh God. Reality struck like a lead pipe. I had no auction number. 
I hadn't even stopped by the desk on the way in. I was in gym clothes, taking pictures of goats to make my fiancé smile. I had never purchased anything at any auction in my entire life. What's worse, I questioned whom the colt was actually better off with. Yep. The buyer stepped on my $50 starting bid. Providence. I returned fire with a vengeance without hesitation. Here! The buyer glanced back, smirk in tow. I glared fire at him. He was the antithesis of this colt. He was death. He was indifference. The auction had become something else now, something darker and heavier. A battlefield where I somehow woke up in the middle of the fray. All I could discern was that I had to separate this colt from the buyer, regardless of the cost. The two could not leave together. I prepared my sword to fall on it. $70, $80, $90, the bids volleyed back and forth. I was choking a rattlesnake, as terrified of letting go as I was holding on. What if I was worse than the buyer? The auctioneer pointed an arthritic finger at the buyer and petitioned for a $130 bid. The buyer asked, Is he broke? What do you care? I snapped. I'm just saying it's a lot of time and work. The buyer grinned. Sir, as I understand it, this horse has never even had a saddle on his back. The buyer raised his right hand over his head, maintaining the grin, then slouched to his left. Beatrix. He waved his hand forward in a forget-it motion. He ain't worth it. The auctioneer pointed to me. So? My jaw dangled. I had a horse. Missy was going to kill me. My arms and legs shook as I bounded down the bleachers to the front desk. <sighs> Hi, uh, I think I bought a horse. All three ladies looked at the wiry, sweating gym rat before them as if I were indeed wearing drag. What's your number? The attractive middle-aged blonde inquired. Huh? My phone number? No, honey, your auction number. Right. What's an auction number? Well, bless your heart, you didn't get an auction number? I labored into a smile and draped it over my fear that Oklahoma still had some obsolete law where making purchases without an auction number gets you hanged. Yeah, I guess not. Uh, am I in trouble of any kind? So I, I wasn't exactly expecting to buy anything tonight or any night ever, but uh, I guess discretion said otherwise. Will you just rest your little head? We'll figure this out. You know they say discretion is the better part of valor. <laughs> oh, that's ironic. The back and forth continued as she completed the sale paperwork and organized everything into a clear plastic page protector. The horse's number was printed on the top right of the protector. 5752. A yellow sheet of horsey hieroglyphs, which I would later discover is called a Coggins, depicted a generic horse, both head-on and from the side. Pencil lines sketched 5752's star and sock, albeit the sock was drawn on the wrong foot. An official certificate accompanied the yellow sheet. I pulled the smaller document from the protector. The wrinkled parchment felt older than it should have. It read, Jockey Club, across the top, in Old English font, and a blue seal emblazoned the background. In bold black letters, toward the top, read 5752's name. Latin honor honore in honore et dignitate his name was honor gravity is a two-sided physics equation no matter how lopsided the earth pulls back against the sun the moon tugs ocean tides across the planet's surface in a moment of universal alignment i felt and understood my pull against the entire cosmos 
The wrinkled paper shivered on my fingertips. Sweetheart, how will you be taking him home? I jostled my eyes and mind free from the paper and back to the woman, remembering she even existed. Honor? Oh, is that his name? I glanced back down to the paper, reassuring myself the word was still there. The paper looked like it had been wadded at one time. Yeah, I guess it is. See, I didn't plan at all, so I don't know. Well, there's a young man out by the loading chute with a white baseball cap. He can take your horse home for a fee if you don't have a trailer. Thanks. I carefully placed the paper back into the page protector. I wandered to the back of the auction house behind the wall with the heavy foreboding door through which all the livestock had passed. Animals were cramped in tiny stalls without food or water or freedom of movement. They stood mired in filth. Rushing, I located the hauler and passed my information. I thanked him for his help. He said he would have the horse to the house by 11 p.m. I had to leave before the empathy drove me mad. I repressed my surroundings by dragging my eyes across the feces-littered floor. As I made my way back to the front of the complex, I spotted him, alone in the dark with little more than specks of broken moonlight on his stall. His gangly silhouette caught my attention, much as it had earlier. He was isolated in a larger stall, as were several other bought animals. He stood motionless, appearing defeated and spiritless, as if what had been so alive on the stage had perished when the steel door closed behind him. On a warm summer's evening, on a train bound for nowhere, I met up with a gambler, we were both too tired to sleep, so we took turns of staring out the window at the darkness. He crammed himself into the back corner of the stall. I climbed up on the fence and sat in silence. I had no answers for him. No excuses. I'm sorry it had to be me. I'm sorry I'm not someone better. You can't lie to a horse. Honesty was the first lesson honor ever taught me. Not extrinsic honesty, but honesty to the mirror. I introduced myself but he remained a statue. My heart nodded. I took one last underexposed picture of a horse, a horse named Honor. But this one wasn't cute, and this one was for me. I wanted to reach out and pet him, but I couldn't. I promise. The words choked as they came out. I promise I'll give you a chance to live. My chin fell to my chest. I hope that's enough. I don't really have any other chances or promises to offer. With downturned face, I stepped off the fence and shuffled to the door. I stopped for a moment at the exit and glanced back. The shroud of darkness prevented me from seeing the living, breathing thing beyond it. I turned and walked away. I brought pain to the auction for the rock-bottom price of hope. I left with honor. And somewhere in the darkness, the gambler, he broke even. But in his final words, I found an ace that I could keep. You got to know when to hold them, know when to fold them, know when to walk away, and know when to run. You never count your money when you're sitting at the table.
there is a lot to unpack here. And we're not going to do that, because that's the purpose of the story. But what I do want to do is set the stage up front, because I don't want the listener to miss these things. And that is, I want to talk about some of the themes, motifs, and symbolism. And a lot of these symbols and threads that run throughout the story came about organically as I wrote them. I didn't deliberately put them in the story. I just simply told the story and realized, wow, these things are actually in this. It's really here. Uh, so I went back later on and kind of refined them so they, they told the story better. But they are organic. But there are some really heavy things in this first chapter. And when I say heavy, I'm not just talking about the emotion. I'm talking about the conflicting interests. Big concepts like dark and light, good and evil, chaos and order, science and faith, life and death. Things that seem to be in a zero-sum game against each other where one must win and one must lose. It's this false binary that the story embraces wholeheartedly and turns on its head. You see, in order to ultimately value each other as individuals, we first have to see that we ourselves do not fall into any one of those binaries. And that if by habit we categorize ourselves, then we will inevitably project that onto others in hasty generalizations and stereotypes. But people are messy, and the world and the universe are chaotic. And even an axe murderer can run into a burning house to save a baby. It's really all a choice and chance incidences. So I want to set the stage to make sure that you are keen to look for these symbols, look for these motifs, and keep them in your back pocket throughout, and I mean throughout the whole story, both seasons, start to finish. What's fantastic about this journey is my instructor was a horse. And any horse person can tell you, a horse will tell you who you are. If you just shut up and listen long enough, the horse will tell you what kind of person you are in that moment. And if you choose to be something different in the next moment, the horse will know that you are something different than you were before. Because that is where a horse lives in that moment. It doesn't dwell on the past or have anxieties about the future. It will take as categorical truth what you show them you are, regardless of your history of poor life choices. A horse doesn't care that you stole cans of spray paint when you were a kid to paint your model rocket. A horse doesn't care that you chucked a fresh skunk carcass on top of the high school air conditioner inlet filter the Friday leading into spring break. They don't care. They only care how you treat them in that moment. So in that moment, we can be anything in reality because that is a horse's reality. And when we choose to be good to a horse, we are good in reality by measure of a horse. You can't lie to a horse. And if you think that there's nothing redeeming about you, be good to a horse. Of course, I guess the flip side of that is, if you can't be good to a horse, then there's nothing redeeming about you. <laughs> but that's neither here nor there. Anyway, welcome to the world of honor. Hope you're enjoying the ride so far. Make sure you dig your hand under the pommel. Hold on tight, because this, this one does go off the rails in the next few chapters. Be sure to drop by the website to livewithhonor.com, go to the episodes page, and then to the Providence post, and you'll be able to see the, the pictures from that night at the auction house. And don't hesitate to send me any questions or comments you have. Uh, my email is timandhonor at gmail.com, or you can send me a DM on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, 
and you can find links to those on the webpage top right. This episode, I want to feature a veterans program that is very special to me by the name of Heroes and Horses out of Manhattan, Montana. The program is the brainchild of former Navy SEAL Micah Fink. This program is near and dear to my heart as I've done fundraising for them over the years. Where this program differs from others is its dedication to flipping the script on its approach to combat-related PTSD. They directly rebuke institutional failings of the bureaucracy, and they don't shy away from challenging participants. Instead, they push them back into the chaos of the wilderness as a team and arm them with the tools and camaraderie they need to survive. It is a selective program that carries veterans start to finish through a multi-phase approach that calls to the individual's purpose and not their problems. You can find out more, donate, or even apply at their website, www.heroesandhorses.org. That's heroesandhorses.org. Be sure to click subscribe and come back next episode for a crash course on how to know absolutely nothing about owning a horse. I'm Tim Finley. This is To Live With Honor. Live fierce. This all ends. <laughs>